Hi, podcast listeners. I'm Mary Harris, WNYC's health editor. For six months, we focused on cancer and how many of us are touched by it. One in two men, one in three women will get this diagnosis. This piece aired on The Leonard Lopate Show. You're listening to The Leonard Lopate Show on AM820 and 93.9 WNYC. Cancer touches almost everyone's lives. We all know someone who's been diagnosed with it. And because of that, cancer is not just about statistics. It's something quite personal. And we are all potentially vulnerable. New documentary film, Cancer, The Emperor of All Maladies, based on Siddhartha Mukherjee's Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Emperor of All Maladies, a biography of cancer, tells the story of the disease from its first known description in ancient Egypt through the current research, breakthrough treatments, and the search for cures. It is directed by Barrett Goodman, and Ken Burns is the film's executive producer. The three-part series will air on PBS stations next Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and I'm very pleased that it brings Barrett Goodman and Ken Burns to our show today. Hello. Hello. Hi. Ken, how did this film come about? Was it directly inspired by Siddhartha Mukherjee's book? Very much so. Uh, Sharon Rockefeller, who is the head of the PBS affiliate in uh, Washington, D.C., WETA, was herself surviving uh, a a very serious, very life-threatening bout with cancer and read Sid's book and came to me and said, you've got to make this. And I said, I'm busy. (laughs) I've got all these films that I'm working on. She said, you have to to make this. And I read Sid's books. It's a work of literature and realized that I had to, but I had to take a a sort of more distant role. I've served as a co-writer and executive producer and found the extraordinary Barrett Goodman to do the day-to-day of of a nearly impossible task, which is to intertwine almost like the the DNA helix, double helix. This is a triple helix of of history, um, compelling detective science, and uh, very personal stories of ordinary people. So once you were brought on to this project, Barrick, how long did it take to do it? There's an awful lot of story to tell. It's a huge story. It took us about two and a half years to tell it. And about a year and a half of that, we spent embedded in two different hospitals simply following patients through their personal stories. Even though many people know someone who's had cancer, do you find that people don't really know the story of cancer? I don't think people know the story of cancer at all. In fact, my impression out there talking to ordinary people is that there's a sense that the war on cancer has failed, that that the all this effort and money spent in the last 40 years hasn't really amounted to much. And I think if there's one thing we can do with this film, it's to dispel that notion. I think that the, we've made enormous progress in the last, especially the last decade. And there's another aspect, which is we get our cancer information, if we even receive it, because it's so terrifying, the emperor of all maladies, in dribs and drabs, you know, that this drug is working, this drug isn't working, this has been approved, this hasn't been approved, we think we're making breakthroughs. We don't know how to aggregate that content. And what Siddhartha Mukherjee's book did was tell us where we've been, where we are, and where we're going, and we've just followed in his extraordinary footsteps. Well, we also see obituaries of people dying still fairly young because they had some it's, form it's of cancer. It's about to become the biggest killer of us very shortly. And the film is narrated by Edward Herman. Uh, didn't he die of brain cancer after he finished working on the film? He did, and we discovered, uh, he let us know that he had brain cancer the very first day we, we began recording with him. Um, and we decided to go forward anyway because he wanted to and was convinced he could do it. And because he's such an extraordinary narrator and human being, we we. we it took maybe three times longer than it would have, but it was well worth it. Getting back to what we were talking about, uh, President Nixon declared a war on cancer in 1971, but we had 
different, very different idea of what cancer was and what the battle would be at that time. You know, we thought that we could throw money at anything and do it. We just put a man on the moon. We, we had extraordinary accomplishments under our belt. But at that time when he declared war, we didn't even know what how cancer started, what was the mechanism. That would come later as part of that. And I think that our story, the one we're trying to tell, is one that's of sort of fitful advances and then a kind of sobering realization that, that the magic bullet is not happening, that it's going to be a much more complicated slog. But it's matched by today's optimisms where people are sort of lifting up out of their troughs, out of their silos of individual cancer research and understanding that there may be a kind of unified, the string theory of cancer that helps us advance progress on all fronts. So for a long time, we were told, Barack, that a major part of the problem was that there's not one single form of cancer or one cure. But now we are thinking string theory? We are. One of the real ironies of this story is that having sort of balkanized the world of cancer into individual diseases based on where they appear in the body at first, we're now seeing underlying connections, mostly based on their genetic underpinnings. The, the certain genes that go wrong might be common to more than one cancer, and therefore attacking them with certain specific drugs may work across cancer types. So it's extremely exciting in the world of cancer. And it's right funny now. because you know we know from the very beginning that what cancer is. I mean, for, in order for us to maintain this conversation, our cells have to divide. If they divide erratically, that's cancer, and it can happen anywhere in the blood, in the bone, in the breast, in the head, in the brain, everywhere. Um, but then, because we segregated ourselves into these different fields, we forgot that it's still the same abnormal growth of cells, that it's a, a distorted version of ourselves, as Nobel Prize winning Harold Varmus said. How have people explained it throughout history? They haven't. You know, the, there's a woman who wrote the New York Times uh, saying she wanted to put in an ad. This is in the late 40s, early 50s for uh, support groups for women with breast cancer. And after being put on hold forever, uh, was told they don't say the word cancer and they don't say the word breast in the New York Times. How about diseases of the chest wall? Oh We've God. literally, not euphemistically, put the sufferers in an attic. And so it's only now in the last few decades that we've made the extraordinary progress, but we've also taken the stigma off it and begun to talk about it. But we also can read things into uh, descriptions of cancer in the past. Uh, uh, Tolstoy wrote an incredible novella about uh, Ivana Ilyich, and when you read it, you realize he was dying of cancer, although the word was not used. Right. Cancer's had such a kind of intense hold over our imaginations, not just over our bodies um, throughout history. There's a kind of meta story to tell about the psychological terror that cancer kind of envelops us in. And I think one, one of the things that we really hope to do with this film is to help dispel that. Cancer is a lot of different diseases, many of which are treatable and curable. But how are we having a much better success rate today than we have in the past? Well, we're, uh, yes, in, in many cancers. I mean, we begin, uh, although the story that we tell begins in ancient Egypt where they're noticing hard lumps in the breast and there is no treatment, there is no treatment through the Greeks and the black bile theories all the way to although sort of the Although they did cut them out. And they, they? We learned to cut things out. We learned to, to radiate them out, which often gave you cancer, and uh, we learned to poison them. But 
that's the story that we begin with, which is Sidney Farber with kids with childhood leukemia that are 100% fatal, that he has this idea, well, let's poison them. And he gets little slight periodic remissions. And now childhood leukemia is 80, 90% curable curable, completely clean. So that's the kind of progress we're making in that cancer and in many others. On the other hand, uh, I have the sense that cancer is becoming more common today. Well, cancer may be becoming more common because the population is aging, but... So it's Alzheimer's it, and cancer? Yeah, yeah. If you live long enough, you'll get cancer, period. Because yes, cancer period. Is, a, is, a, is a disease of ab- aberrant cell division. And, and when cells divide, they, the mistakes are made and the right combination of mistakes yields cancer. But it, it is an example of how fast the pace of change is, is occurring is that in the last five years, since Sid's book, Sid Mukherjee's book came out, a whole new field of therapy called immunotherapy has grown up, which is now sweeping the cancer world as the most exciting new frontier. That's just in five years. So we are really entering a new phase of this battle. How does immunotherapy work? I, yeah. We have talked about so, it in the past so, on so, the show, but yeah, so not everybody heard that. So basically, you know, your immune system, your T cells attack foreign enemies. But in cancer, because it's us, it doesn't recognize it as an enemy. And so there's little switches. And so immunotherapy essentially turns on the switch. And what we're trying to figure out is to make sure that what happens to the body is not all, everybody rushing at one moment. Uh, it can be lethal. It can be absolutely but how we might harness our natural immune uh, system to fight the most specific cancers. And if you combine immunotherapy with the genetic advances we've made, targeted things, the precision medicine that we're talking about, the metadata, our ability to analyze so much, the mapping of the human genome specifically for you when you go in, uh, all of that combined means that we have an arsenal of tools we didn't have five years ago. I'm talking with Ken Burns, who's the executive producer and Barrick Goodman, who is the director of a documentary film called Cancer, the Emperor of All Maladies, which will be broadcast on PBS stations next Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday nights. You needed that much time to tell this story? <laughs> we needed more time than we even have. It's a huge, sprawling story. I mean, you mentioned it goes back to ancient Egypt. Most of our story happens from the mid-1940s to today, where, which is really the modern age of cancer research. But we, as Ken mentioned earlier, we have this ambitious plan of weaving in really a whole verite film within our film. And with all the science and all the history, we certainly needed six hours, yeah. Well, you, we've been talking about cures, but what about prevention? Mm. Uh, what are some of the theories today? Uh, how important is the environment, or is it mostly well, we, a genetic thing? No, no, no. We know that, that some cancers are sponsored by viruses. Some are obviously genetically uh, uh, initiated. Stop smoking, please. Uh, and then we know there's a genetic component to all of this, but whether you're, you're, you're wired, we're, we're just still discovering all of those things. So part and parcel of our studies are the obvious things about prevention, and prevention has to do with diet, it has to do with lifestyle, all of the things we sort of know in our gut. And there's also early detection that permits us, say, you know, Katie uh, Couric's colon makes a cameo in our, in our film. She saved probably thousands of lives by people who now have uh, undergone the routine colonoscopy that has been able to do it. And if you get it early enough, it's it's up there in the 90% secure. Was finding a link between smoking and cancer the beginning of that kind of thinking? And I, I, another yeah. question that you can't answer is, why is it that I still see so many 
people smoking outside of buildings. And why do human beings go to war? Yeah. (laughs) I think that uh, certainly the discovery of the link between cigarette smoke and cancer was the most important event in the history of of cancer prevention and was very hard won. I mean, there there were major efforts to not only suppress but to to disprove that. There were some very brave and and persistent researchers who – really made that link concrete. but uh, And that has been one of the great success stories in cancer, especially in this country as smoking rates have, have declined. That has accounted for most of the decline in mortality over the last 20 or 30 years. But we, then we learned that too much exposure to the sun can cause melanoma. Uh, is that preventing people from going to the beach as much? I think or it's had least... an impact. I think people are aware of it. I think the next thing to worry about is obesity. There's a clear link between obesity and cancer. They're not quite sure of the mechanism, but that's the next epidemic that could erase all of the gains we've made in in smoking. We'll take a little break. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, how some of the treatments weren't ideal and then uh, talk about some of the ones that are really promising today. My guests are Barack Goodman, who is the director of a three-part series called Cancer, the Emperor of Maladies that will be broadcast on PBS stations next Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Ken Burns, who is the film's executive producer. Stay with us for more. We're back with Barrett Goodman, the director of a three-part series that's going to be broadcast on PBS stations next Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday called The Cancer, the Emperor of All Maladies. Also with us is Ken Burns, who is the executive producer, originally, I guess, slated to be the director, but other things happen. Uh, The documentary begins looking closely at uh, childhood leukemia, and you said that that um, seems, we seem to be, have figured that one out on the whole. Yes. But then there's the story of a child named Luca who was treated for cancer when he was two. The treatment ended up causing another kind of cancer. What what happened? That's a fairly common um, side effect, unfortunately, of of cancer therapy. He He had a sarcoma that was treated and it caused a secondary cancer. Sometimes the treatment for the original cancer mutates the genes and the cells inside a person's body until a second cancer. And those secondary cancers are often much tougher to treat. Radiation can cause cancer, yes. and we're treating cancers with radiation. Yeah, this is, the, this is the great conundrum. And then there are bone marrow transplants, which haven't turned out to be as uh, ideal as people thought initially. Well, they work, they work fairly well for leukemia. Uh, for children with various advanced cases of leukemia, bone marrow transplant is given so that they can introduce very high doses of chemotherapy and then and then essentially replace the child's uh, immune system with a bone marrow transplant. But it was tried in women with breast cancer, and it was a disaster. Uh, thousands and thousands of women were given this very excruciating and difficult therapy. Many of them and died expensive. from it. And expensive, 20% fatality, something like that, and it turned out not to work any better than low-dose chemotherapy. How was a genetic basis for cancer discovered? What are oncogenes? Well, oncogenes are uh, genes that actually are the triggers, the mechanism that begins a whole tumbling of events. And all of those events have to take place, mostly in sponsoring certain proteins that eventually will create a cancer. And so we, until the mid-'70s, had no idea what they were. We, We had been working for a long time on the raw 
the Rouse sarcoma virus, where we understood in chickens, uh, and we isolated that. Two scientists, uh, Bishop and Varmus, isolated this and figured out that there was this distinguishing feature of the of one of the genes uh, in this virus that caused cancer. And that has basically, we have been plowing forward from Bishop and Varmus ever since in, in great, great leaps and bounds. Has the Human Genome Project led to any cancer breakthroughs yet? Yes. Uh, the Human Genome Project, which was the project to essentially decode the human genome, led to an even bigger project called the Cancer Genome Atlas, which was an effort to decode all of the major cancer genomes. And that data is still pouring in, and it, it, it yields a fine map of exactly what's wrong in the major cancer types. And now what we're doing is we're going down to the individual level. Each person's genome, even within the same cancer type, will be different. And finding out exactly the recipe of mistakes in one's genome can yield a much more precise kind of therapy. Angela Jolie wrote a piece, uh, an op-ed in today's New York Times, about her decision to have her ovaries and fallopian tubes removed following a double mastectomy because she carries the BRCA gene. What are your thoughts on that genetic test? And um, a lot of people still think that she overreached or, or, you know, just went too far in, in, that, uh, in, in the way she has dealt with the problem. You know what? These are intensely personal decisions that are made with extraordinary experts, and I'm sure she's getting the best possible care. I think we tend to rise up, and because it's, we live in a celebrity culture, we begin to form opinions that, that we just we don't know the available information about her. Many people uh, find themselves in kind of genetic crosshairs, and it seems perfectly reasonable to try to eliminate the possibilities of a future cancer by taking these kind of prophylactic early uh, actions to, to prevent you. And she found herself in, in two sets of crosshairs, one with regard to breast cancer and the other with ovarian cancer? Well, part of the problem, uh, as I see it, is that you are tested for a propensity for a certain kind of cancer, but that doesn't mean you're going to get it necessarily. Right. We're, we're in a moment where the, the, the tests are not, are not predictive enough. The tests give you an odds or a percentage, but one of the really most exciting areas of cancer research is finding better uh, predictive data, proteins in your body that, that, that show that a cancer is beginning long before it threatens your life so that you can take specific action. I think we're still in this kind of gray period where some of these tests, even the mammogram, is a little bit of a blunt instrument, and that's, that's a difficult position to be in. And talking about mammograms, breast cancer makes up about 14% of all cancer cases in the United States, and your film looks closely at breast cancer and its treatment from the first surgeries in the 19th century to today. Wasn't the radical mastectomy one of the first routine cancer surgeries? Indeed, and this is one of the great you know, stories, uh, you know, terrifying stories of the narrative that we're trying to wrestle to the ground here. Uh, Halstead, the great surgeon, took off the whole breast and sometimes more part of the muscular of the arm. Is that why it's called radical? Radical, because it was doing the whole breast. And it was determined uh, in the mid-70s, again, people just sort of woke up and said, wait, the emperor has no clothes. This protocol we're just doing, women 
patients became agents of this change, demanding why do you have to take it all the way when, in fact, the data prove that in many cases the lumpectomy, the much uh, smaller version of that surgery, was just as effective. The mortality rates were not any different. And we began as patients to, to demand a new kind of new protocols, and, and that governed new research. And that's an important part of this story. You follow Dr. Lori Wilson, a surgical oncologist who was diagnosed with breast cancer. What was her diagnosis? She had a very unusual case. She had different can cancers in each breast, one very aggressive, one less aggressive, but which had spread further. And what's remarkable about her is she, and she has said this off camera as well, that being put in the position of a patient rather than a surgical oncologist was a completely different perspective on things. And the fear crept in and the uncertainty crept in. She's suddenly kind of feeling all those helpless feelings that her own patients felt uh, and that she kind of recognized intellectually but hadn't kind of that visceral feeling. And this completely changed her perspective on a profession. We've had a number of doctors come on our show to talk about that, how when they got sick and they realized that they were being treated the way they had treated other people, they had to do something to change their own approaches. You know, Siddhartha Mukherjee says that, you know, this story of cancer is one of the most urgent stories that we have, but also medicine is itself the most human of the sciences, and therefore it is heir to all the things the flesh and the heart are heir to. And I think what we've now seen is paradigm shifting within a scientific inquiry, but also within a human dimension to bring the patient in as a full partner in this decision to understand the extent to which empathy, uh, in, in the largest sense of that word, goes a long way in these exchanges, which are often fraught literally with life or death consequences. My guests are Ken Burns and Barrack Goodman. We're talking about a film called Cancer, the Emperor of All Melodies. I actually probably should say three films <laughs> because they will be broadcast on three nights next week on PBS stations on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I'm Leonard Lopate, and this is WNYC, WNYC.org. You reveal how much trial and error there's been and still is with cancer treatment. How does that make the science and especially the treatment so mm. difficult? Like all sciences, but maybe particularly with cancer research, it's fraught with failure. It is nine, as, as Robert Weinberg, the great MIT scientist, says in our film, cancer is a profession for manic depressives because 95% of the time you're failing. And only once in a while do you see a breakthrough. And that, that is, that is the, the, the history of cancer is about these you know, one step forward, two step back kind of false optimism greeted by great disappointment. But all along, we've made this progress. But for the doctors as yeah. well, I uh, had a loved one who uh, had cancer, and when it became apparent that it was going to take her life, the oncologist disappeared, hmm. and she felt like she had been abandoned. There's a there's a growing movement in cancer care for palliative care for for when the treatment doesn't work and when it's not going to work. What do you do to change the culture inside hospitals so that there is healing happening with the end of life as well. And we have a wonderful section in our film in the third episode about a 12-minute story of a brilliant cancer doctor in West Virginia, a young woman named Suzanne Cole. And we follow her as she has these hard conversations with patients who are in the, you know, stage four metastatic cancer for whom there is no other treatment. And she talks to them about their options and she makes them understand that just driving ahead with chemotherapy is not necessarily in their best interest. And watching that happen... It's the human part of being exactly. a cancer doctor. But yeah. my the the uh, 
explanation given to my friend was the oncologist was all committed to success, and when it became apparent that it was going to fail, then she no longer felt any commitment. I, I think we can safely say that's not as good an oncologist as you want to have, and that, you know, we... I'm not going to tell you we, her name. She's we, famous. <laughs> we're, we're really looking for people who have the compassion along with the intelligence and the science. Cancer treatment is incredibly expensive. We have a clip from the movie of Dr. Peter Bach of Memorial Sloan Kettering. Getting cancer is one of the worst economic things that can happen to you in the United States. It causes the accumulation of enormous amounts of debt, fundamentally shifts the finances of families, and what's very uh, challenging for a lot of patients is that it can often be a disease that ends your life. And so sort of the resources you've accumulated that you hope to pass on to your heirs or your surviving spouse or someone else end up being consumed in the treatment of a condition that in some cases is incurable. What's the impact of the high cost of drugs? It's huge in a, in a country that's only now beginning to figure out how to have universal health care. Uh, we, we dwarfed, you know, some of the same drugs in the United States cost a lot more than they do in Europe for different reasons. But the, one of the poignant scenes in the film, uh, the same Dr. Suzanne Cole in West Virginia is sort of introducing patients to a very important person, which is a kind of facilitator, a mediator who's dealing with the financial aspects of this and whether you're, you just make sure that you're making your car payment or your rent payment, as well as figuring out how to pay for these hyper-expensive drugs. Well, it's, are it's poor very people sad. more likely to die of cancer in this country? They are more likely to die of cancer, unfortunately, and that's, a, that's an awful moral uh, crime, really. But this is a complicated issue. I mean, if you talk to pharmaceutical companies, the reason they will put forward for the high cost of drugs is that so many of their projects fail. Ninety percent of their R&D money is thrown down a black hole. And, and, and really, the solution to this problem is for that batting average to be higher, for basic science to be funded so that we understand better what cancer drugs will work and what won't so that we're not having to jack up the prices of successful drugs to pay for the unsuccessful drugs. And there's only one entity that could, say, win the Second World War uh, from our point of view, and that's the United States government. And the federal government of this time has its own kind of cancer. The, what has metastasized is an idea that government of any form is bad. And at a moment of such great optimism and possibility and real hope that the funds are not being directed as they could and should be to the things and a kind of all-out federal effort at this time as the kind we mounted in, in World War II and have mounted with cancer before when we knew so much less is not happening and we need to convince our elected officials that this is money well spent. But you're talking about research. What research about money. What about Obamacare? Has that eased the problems for some people who have of, been diagnosed? Of course it has. And I've met many, many people who've said, you know, I couldn't afford my medicine. I couldn't afford to get sick. And now they're able to have, because of their certain uh, uh, economic circumstance, a very low cost uh, health care. You have uh, invited people to share their stories on your website. What kinds of stories are you hearing? They're 
as individual and different as everybody who's posting them. Everybody's cancer story is different, like their disease is different, but they're all, they share, you know, just a, a, a deep humanity. Um, I think it's, Ken alluded to this earlier, that this notion that we have that everyone sort of should be fighting cancer in exactly the same way as a patient. Actually, the reactions are incredibly broad to how, to what happens when you're diagnosed. Some people treat it as a war, others don't. And, 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 Neither neither sort of response is better than the other, and it's quite important that we acknowledge that, and we show this in the film, that every cancer journey is unique. So we wanted a place that people could post those individual experiences, and you'd see the whole gamut of responses to cancer. It's really wonderful, and it, it is about a conversation. I mean, we spend a lot of time in broadcast telling people stuff. It's really important, we've learned recently, to listen and let, let the things come in and in, in, in real reciprocity, enjoy these stories. And some of them are incredibly moving, and some of them are very heartwarming, and I think there'll be interconnections before them, and who knows what kind of benefits, real and imagined, will come out of it. You followed some patients who didn't make it. There are heartwarming stories. There is the success of drugs like Herceptin and Gleevec, which are really promising. But then there are people who we, who died. We wanted to be honest about this disease. We, it would have been a complete disservice to be Pollyannish about cancer. So it was important to us to, to, to include stories that we were following in which the outcomes weren't positive. And we didn't know going in that certain patients would die or live. But when a child you mentioned earlier, Luca Asante, tragically passed away unexpectedly, as doctors didn't expect it at all. We they debated, thought they were succeeding. They the thought treatment. they were succeeding, and it looked like they were. And this is the treachery and, and unpredictability of cancer. He, he had a, a, a bad response. And went south, and we, we had to debate internally whether we were going to show the death of a child. We didn't show it, but we included the, the story in the film. I think it was the right decision because the tragedy of cancer is so much a part of the story, and we needed to include that. And then it gets so complicated. Very targeted drugs can have miraculous results and then suddenly stop working. Well, this is the great wily emperor of all maladies that we're talking about. This is an adapting, mutating, clever beast within us. You know, it's Pogo. We have met the enemy and he is us. Uh, and that's a terrifying my thing own about body, chance. Uh, my own body is betraying me. And we have to overcome a little bit about this. Look, we are all going to die. And it would seem not unreasonable for all human beings to be in the fetal position waiting for that to happen because it's so disappointing. But in fact, people get up and they figure out cures for childhood leukemia and breast cancer survival rates are increasing as are almost all forms of, of cancer treatment. And that's a wonderful thing. And, and this death will be part of it. And as Barrick was saying, the palliative dimension of this is hugely important to figure out how to dismount from the war and to surrender but not in an ultimate way. At the same time, we're talking about treating cancer. There are people who are concerned that uh, the uh, the growing uh, amount of chemicals in our environment and all sorts of other things may very well be leading for, to uh, a whole new problem of cancer. That is true that people do feel that way, but whether there's a basis in science is very You can't unclear. prove it in court, obviously. Yeah, you can't prove it in court or the court of, of science. I mean, if you talk to most epidemiologists and scientists who study 
carcinogens, the, the, the external environmental causes of cancer, they're remarkably few that have really been proven to be carcinogenic. And I think there's a lot of misinformation, unfortunately, out there, a lot of worry. This isn't to push people towards eating things with preservatives and chemicals. There may well be hidden carcinogens that we don't know about, but the, but the science re- really making those links is still very murky. What do you hope people will take away from these films? You know, I, I think Sid uh, Mukherjee said the other evening uh, when we were screening it for some folks that he wanted everybody to become a cancer researcher. Mm-hmm. He didn't mean that. He meant it that if we are in the thrall of this emperor, we ought to be curious about the dynamics of it. And whether it's just watching the film and thinking about it and supporting cancer research or maybe a couple of kids watching it will turn themselves. That will be a good thing. But we have to demystify it. We've got to stop calling it the big C. We need to actually talk with one another and understand that there is no one within the sound of my voice that is untouched by this disease. The other thing I think, I completely agree with Ken, and the other thing I think that's vital to get across is that we are in an incredibly promising moment in cancer research. Everyone we spoke to unanimously, of the researchers we spoke to, was optimistic about the future. And, and so when people think about the war on cancer as a failure and, and the fact that we haven't had a lot of new therapies coming through the pipeline, that is a mistake. That's That stuff is about to happen. We're entering a second revolution in cancer, the revolution in treatment and therapy, and we need to get that across in these films. So do you plan to do uh, another series in 10 years from now? What do you think? Yeah. Well, I, I think particularly with this one, I haven't uh, felt that it was appropriate within the context of American history, except, of course, baseball. Well, the Civil War is thing. over already. Yeah, the Civil War is over already. But we updated baseball. But this would be a really wonderful thing to come back and take a, a check uh, about where we've been in 10 years from now or whatever to, to, to come back and, and circle the wagons again. Thank you both so much for being on our show, Ken Burns and Barrett Goodman. Uh, the show, the films, the three films, documentaries, Cancer, the Emperor of All Maladies, will be broadcast on PBS stations next Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. At what time on Channel 13? On Channel 9, on 13, I believe. But as yeah. we always say in public television, check local listings. It is really one film, Leonard, and it's, it, it's an arc across the whole thing. We're just not going to make you sit and watch six hours at once. <laughs> Thank you both so much for being on our show. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Check out WNYC's Living Cancer, the radio companion to the documentary Cancer, the Emperor of Maladies. You can find a link to it on our show page at WNYC.org. Support for Living Cancer is provided by the Susan and Peter Solomon Family Foundation. Additional funding for WNYC's medical science reporting is provided by the Iris and Junming Lee Foundation.